Alaska Teen Media Institute. I'm at me producer Rowie McCallan. This is Zoom Room. A youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. Alaska has a mountain of interesting history that has not been written about. That is David Reamer, a historian whose focus in recent years has been unearthing Alaska's complicated and curious past. He writes a weekly column for the Anchorage Daily News about the state's history, covering a wide range of topics that include landmark restaurants, unsolved crimes, and Anchorage's most famous horse. But like this is what history is like when you're dealing with like the raw materials of it. You're constantly going from you know, flipping a page of the newspaper from some horrible arson to some unbelievable story of like, and now we have penguins in town and we're all going to Dairy Queen together. At me senior producer Quinn White spoke with Reamer about his work. He talks about Anchorage's history with housing discrimination, why the city looks the way it does, and some of the stranger tidbits of Alaska's past. So when I was doing my research and trying to write my questions, the one of the questions I kept asking myself, I was like, why choose Anchorage and why choose Alaska history specifically? Why is why is this so important to you? Um, pragmatic and accidental reasons. Um, I came to Alaska because my wife had a job here at the university and <laughs> we moved for me before, so we moved for her this time. And I was already getting interested in history. I was studying history at the time. I've gone back to school to get my bachelor's degree in history. Uh, graduated with that in 2015 from University of Alaska Anchorage. And there's opportunities here in history you wouldn't have elsewhere. Uh, for example, there was a time when I thought I might focus on Roman history or history of Chicago in like the Gilded Reformer age, 1900, 1920, that era. But those are extremely well-trodden areas. You can't move without bumping into a book about Roman history. History of Chicago is extremely well-documented and covered, extremely deeply researched. Alaska has a mountain of interesting history that has not been written about. Um, and that's actually something I challenge myself is when I have a weekly newspaper column in the Anchorage Daily News, is to write a story that either has not been written before or that I include details that have not been included before. And that's something I can easily do in Alaska. And that that challenge, that new fresh material that's not seen the light of public day is just too fascinating for me. Totally. You know, I didn't, um, maybe this, um, this was kind of ignorant on my part, but I didn't realize that you weren't from Alaska. That is really cool. I don't talk about that much. I think that hurts the um, <laughs> the standing, maybe. I just don't bring it up too much. Oh, my gosh. You know, I just, you know, I guess I just assumed. But um, that's really interesting that you're an Alaska transplant that's now kind of an expert in all things Anchorage. I, I feel like I have, um, it hurts me in some ways that I didn't grow up here. I didn't go to high school here. Um, so I don't share in like, you know, when people talk to me about, oh, this memory of West High, did you go there? Or 
did you go to this high school in Fairbanks? Um, but at the same time, I've been able to have a somewhat, you know, I live here, I work here, my wife lives here. This is our life for the far foreseeable future. But I also come with a, um, I can have that distance perspective. I'm not as, you know, personally invested in the past of Alaska in that way. Like these aren't, you know, necessarily my events or events that happened to my family in the past. I can come in and, you know, analyze it more critically. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if I, if I remember correctly, did you start, when, did you start publishing your articles on Alaska history on Nextdoor? Yes. Um, so I've always been interested in, I think academic history is amazing, but tends to be a bit insular. Um, you have these fantastic works of new findings that get read by historians and that's it. That's the circle of discovery. So I became more and more interested in the appetite for history that I saw out there that wasn't being answered. And so that interests me in ideas of reach, of being able to reach an audience, of being able to reach a larger, you know, relevant audience, an audience that would you know, maybe be somewhat predisposed to the topics. And I had been getting emails about Nextdoor. I'd heard about Nextdoor and it's often earned negative reputation. But at the same time, I saw the, uh, a map of my neighborhood in Anchorage and it showed this insanely high percentage of homes that were signed up for next door. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this is fantastic. And in a somewhat naive sense, I had thought that maybe I could change some of the, how can I say this? Negative tone that comes with a lot of the conversations on next door. Uh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about that because, um, most of the things that I've personally seen are on next door are a little bit, um, you know, they're not very, yeah, I don't know how to say it either. No, they're not nice. No, not nice. Oh, no, they're, they're often racist, hate-filled, um, extremely negative perspectives on the town. It focuses on far outside the actual impact of these issues on crime, on homelessness. I myself have walked in my neighborhood with a hoodie on and seen a post about me about who is this strange man with a hoodie doing in our neighborhood. Oh my God. <laughs> so <laughs> next door has earned all of its negative reputation, but in my simple naive way, I thought I'll give them something else to talk about on there. You know, and it'll be about the area. <laughs> you know, only people within a certain range of your home can read what you post on next door. So I thought, I'm limiting myself to an Alaska audience. I will give them Alaska topics. Um, many of them were light. Some of them were quite serious. Um, even on Nextdoor, I was posting topics about incidents of discrimination um, in Anchorage that hadn't been <laughs> published before, even academically. And people would say very nice things about it. They would be very happy. Um, they would be delighted in these local stories. And then there would still be all the other negative posts right around mine. So after a year, I um, gave up on Nextdoor. You know, that kind of leads me into my next question. I'm really curious about, um, you know, your column for ADN and how you got your start in publishing these historical articles. So did you get picked up by the newspaper? Yep, the newspaper um, contacted me, uh, the editor of the paper, David Hewlin. 
this is one of his proud pet projects is that the paper engages in local history in this way. I, the paper has a history of doing this, so Mike Dugan, you know, people like Dermot Cole stopping by, but it didn't have it at the time. And as you know, newspapers struggle horribly these days, but one of the ways that newspapers can thrive better now is by focusing more on, you know, the local issues, the immediate needs of their, you know, immediate audience. So they came to me, they said, we want you to basically do what you're doing on Nextdoor, write what you want. And the idiot has essentially never pushed back on my topics, especially when whenever I write about something racial, mm-hmm. I get complaints about why did you write this? That was that was my father. How dare you say my father did these racist things with all of your evidence? Oh, no, <laughs> they, they hate to hear that. They hate to hear that. <laughs> Yes, that that has happened a few times because Alaska is not that big a community. Anchorage definitely is not. <laughs> There's only <laughs> for a state that has its limited, um, you know, timeline of American history. Um, certain families have been important for large parts of it, and I have addressed some of those families, like the Cars family. Mm-hmm. They did not like me writing about cars. <laughs> Another aspect of the newspaper column that I requested is that I would have this. Um, there's a form at the end of every one of my columns, mm-hmm. uh, along with a bibliography, uh, which I'm happy that I get you know, sources into a newspaper column. And so people are able to suggest topics. They send me questions. I usually spend at least a day a week answering history questions from just whoever wants to send me a question. You know, one of the things I was curious about is how does somebody make a living as a historian? So is that, um, so is that my, your main focus is working for the newspaper? Um, not monetarily. I mean, it's still a newspaper. I'm not going to die rich, but if I wanted to do that, I wouldn't have gone into history in the first place. You know, I feel the same <laughs> way about journalism. <laughs> yeah. at, at a certain point, like I, I found a vocation, more to say. I get paid elsewhere. I've done some, you know, I've been hired to write biographies for a few people, uh, grant projects. I've just um, signed a deal with the municipality of Anchorage. I'm working to map the the town's um, racial covenants, housing covenants and deeds that said, you know, minorities can't live here. These were rife in the 1940s and 1950s. This has actually been one of my actual primary research avenues is the history of discrimination in Anchorage. And so I'm going to be mapping these for the city Mm -hmm. Um, along with general policy analysis. Certain cities in America have tried to, you know, pull these out of deeds because they're still there. People go into their deeds and find them. This happened with an assembly member last year. Mixolotl, she has a, a black child. I was speaking to the assembly about the history of housing discrimination at Anchorage. She was like, I live in one of these neighborhoods. Do you think my deed has one of these? And I was like, oh, yes. She was like, oh, no. And she went home and she found it. And she's just, you know, how do I deal with this? How do I tell my child that she wouldn't have been welcome here? And actually, in her neighborhood specifically is one of the uh, darker <laughs> Uh, neighborhoods when it comes to Anchorage history. Rogers Park, 
because they actually burned down a house to keep a black family from moving there in the 1950s. Oh my God. You know, the th- I never, that's so, I mean, I have more questions about this like coming up, but you know, that's crazy. I've never even heard about that. And I grew up here. Rogers Park fire. Yes. Um, the day before this family was going to move in, they burned the house down. And nothing was done about it. There was no investigation. Firefighters watched it burn. The family didn't leave, mm-hmm. uh, which is good to say. Um, they moved over to uh, Russian Jack area. Made a, did very well for themselves, but they couldn't live where they had wanted to live. So when we look at old Anchorage neighborhoods like Rogers Park, how have the demographics of those neighborhoods changed over the years? Um. Rogers Park is interesting because it was pure white. It was in the plats. It was on the deed saying, you know, this is white only. Directly across Chester Creek from Rogers Park is, you know, that's Fairview now. Uh, But that used to be East Chester. And that part between 15th and the creek directly across from Rogers Park was East Chester Flats, which was Anchorage's black community uh, in the you would say the very late 40s through the 50s into the 1960s until it was cleared by urban renewal. And one of the reasons um, Rogers um, Rogers Park residents voted to be annexed into the city of Anchorage because they were, when that neighborhood was built, it was, you know, outside city limits. This city population at that time boomed far too fast for the city to keep up with incorporating these new areas. Mm-hmm. But reason they decided to move into the city and which was a major argument in those days was like, do you go into the city? Do you get better fire protection? Do you get better police service, police coverage? And do you pay more taxes? And some people are like, no, no taxes. You see that to this day in cities like uh, Wasilla, which would would rather have um, state troopers cover average police work rather than raise taxes to pay for a police force. Mm -hmm. And so Rogers Park voted to be annexed into the city, all other negatives aside, because they were afraid people from the East Chester Flats across the stream were going to move into their neighborhood. This was the specific reason they cited in 1957. Mm -hmm. So they wanted the protection of the city so these people did not... I mean, they thought they were going to get invaded. So it's not that they were making a ton of logical sense, but in their minds, the city will protect us. Mm-hmm. Like this was a motivation. Um, several other neighborhoods, Spinard, you know, Spinard's a very diverse community now. You know, you can go to Ethiopian restaurants there. Every, you know, food from around the globe. Can't remember if the halal market's there, but. Yeah. But Spinard was a white neighborhood. Um, the only time Spinard was broken out as its own independent city in the census was 1960. Spinard then, I believe, was around 99% white. Oh my God. It was more white than the rest of the city of Anchorage. That is insane. You know, as we're talking about these historical events of systemic racism and discrimination in Anchorage, I'm really curious, like you said, like a lot of our community is kind of like built on like you know, like you've been saying, not very, not very nice things. Um, so how does that kind of lead us to where we are today? I mean, to continue with the demographic way, the more diverse neighborhoods in Anchorage, uh, Fairview, Mountain View, 
they didn't have as much of these patterns of discrimination. Uh, I've not come across any examples of explicit housing discrimination in Mountain View. And that is one of many reasons why Mountain View is diverse today, that it has a history of people being able to move in there. Mm-hmm. You know, people new to town, people without connections, not having to fight someone to live in South Edition or Turnigan. Oddly enough, I did find even in Fairview, which was, you know, more minority friendly early in the it's the city's history, earlier, um, I do find some examples of racism, um, usually north of 15th, um, kind of on the west side of Fairview, closer to like Cordova. And those are these, you know, generally, I mean, I've written about them. I've co-written a journal article about them. I've written about them in the newspaper. I have a co-authored academic monograph coming from the University of Washington Press on this. But to the public, every time I talk about this, every time I tweet about this, there are still people who are constantly, as, as you are learning there, I'm constantly finding people that this is new history because Previous Alaska and Anchorage historians have not touched on this. And this was right there to get picked up and no one has included this. Yeah, you know, this is really important work. Like I said, like I grew up here and you know, like I was always very aware when I was growing up that Anchorage is like kind of a segregated city, you know, like there's, um, I mean, I'm like you've been saying, like, I mean, I know it's changed a lot to where we are today, but this is like kind of like, um, connecting the dots for me a little bit. I've heard from students who are going through, who endure some horrible stuff if they dare exist in, say, South Anchorage. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids are still going through this at school. It's still, how do I say this? I tend to say something like, David, you've told us about all this historical housing discrimination. Does it still exist? It's illegal. Yeah. I go, yeah, it's not legally enforced, but it's socially enforced. You know, you go to a house and suddenly it's, you hear the house has already been rented. I'm sorry, go away. Or you have unpleasant neighbors who are like, I'm going to go move somewhere else. I'm not welcome in this neighborhood. Those little ways of being socially, I mean, was it just last year a black man was jogging in town and was stopped by uh, a woman? This was over by... um, I remember this, yeah. Yeah, sort of diamond and sea. I can't remember what's that lake there. Um, I. Taku. Yes, I think so. Yeah, around um, Taku. Another thing that I was interested in is your research in Alaska Jewish history. Um, can you tell me about some of the findings in that area? Oh, um, that's inter- interesting that you touched on that. Um, that was before started doing that long before I was working for the newspaper, long before I was doing anything public-minded. So there was a problem in Alaska in the 1920s and 30s. Nobody wanted to live here. Mm-hmm. The same time, they already knew this place was a treasure trove of resources. Everybody wanted to get their little dirty hands on it. But they needed to develop ways to extract those resources. You know, you you need ways in, you need ports, you need roads. And a lot of this stuff isn't going to happen. You know, you need a workforce. Sure. Getting a workforce has been a long problem in Alaska history. People coming out working a little while, but then just moving right back out to the lower 48 with their money. 
so they saw a need to you know develop the state you know develop a population that would allow them to develop is the word that often gets used back in those days mm -hmm. more accurate in many ways to say exploit but they would talk about in development we need to develop the state we need roads we need people then we can get the stuff and then we can get the money is essentially their thinking we get people here enough people to do the work then we can get the money but nobody wanted to live here Anchorage reached a peak population of like six to eight thousand in 1917, 1918. By 1920, that has dropped to you know around two thousand. Oh my gosh! Yeah. The the railroad has you know construction had moved far away from Anchorage, so it wasn't like an immediate base, although there was still like you know offices here, and there was no other reason for Anchorage. <laughs> So Anchorage doesn't surpass its 1917 population until the very early 40s when they choose to build Fort Richardson. Mm -hmm. In between that time, you have the Depression, you have this long-term doldrums, the salmon industry had declined by the 1920s, um, thoughts to develop like the, you know, Manuska-Sasitna area for coal that had proven to not be, you know, worth the time and effort. But they knew there was all this other wealth here. So there are all these, in all the columns of the day, all, every newspaper in the territory, every politician in the territory, they were constantly hit on, we need people to move here. Mm -hmm. So I, I took a while to get to my point, but World War II hits, suddenly there's a large group of people wanting to leave Germany and Europe. And these people, Jews, although in the day, most often it would be very coded language, they would tend to not say Jews specifically, they would say refugees, persecuted refugees from Germany would be like a specific phrase. And there was a proposal from the Interior Department. Alaska as a territory then was essentially run by the Interior Department. And they came up with this proposal that we could fix Alaska's problems. You want people? Well, look at this, we have a group of people wanted to leave a horrible situation, and they are willing to move to Alaska. Look at that. Problem solved. Mm -hmm. This is one of those moments where people said a lot of nice things before they were forced to this point. And once it became the idea that they were going to fix their problem with Jews, then everyone got angry. Oh, I see. And every single newspaper eventually came down against it, every chamber of commerce, Alaska's delegate to Congress, non-voting delegate to Congress, Anthony Diamond, the governor, Ernest Greening, who was himself Jewish, opposed settling of Jewish refugees. There's this constant talk of they're going to ruin our culture. They're going to make us un-American. They're going to take over. They are going to ruin us. That the Jews would somehow come in, these, you know, Refugees of the Holocaust, which people already knew some details about the Holocaust by this time, mm -hmm. fleeing, you know, death. But to Alaskans, they were going to ruin Alaskan culture, ruin what Alaska was for them. You know, in other words, they didn't see themselves as going to be able to make that money. Huh. They're like, how dare we let in these people fleeing the Holocaust come take our position in Alaska? And so the uproar was such that the plan died, um, got brought up again after World War II, where there were still, you know, large groups of Jewish refugees seeking a new homeland, people who 
didn't want to go back to Germany, didn't want to go back to Austria, Poland, wherever. And again, they were said, no, if you're so interested in these people, you take them to your town. You know, same sort of language you might hear about the homeless. Mm-hmm. You can hear people say, we need to do things for the homeless. We need to provide services. But then when it comes to your neighborhood, it's no, not here. NIMBYism. Jewish refugees in early 1940s Alaska was a large-scale NIMBYism. Yes, help the refugees, but not here. You know, I had no idea that um, Alaska had, like, this, um, you know, this basis in, like, anti-Semitism. The interesting thing is there are exceptions. Um, It's sort of the way racism works is, like, uh, for example, I grew up in the South. I was around many racist people, but then they would avidly watch, you know, their Alabama-Auburn football on Saturday. They had no problem cheering for black people playing football because they were different. They were okay. They were playing football. Maybe they would have a black friend, but that person was different. Mm -hmm. In Anchorage, for example, the first mayor was Jewish, but he was different. That was an exception. That wasn't a bunch of Jewish people coming in. Mm Mayor uh, Lusak, Zachariah Lusak, who the library is named after, he was Jewish. He was a mayor later, but he was an exception. He was one man. He wasn't a bunch of Jews moving in. Racism is weird and illogical and inconsistent and open to exceptions so long as it doesn't interfere with other people. Crazy how that happens. Crazy how there's not a lot of logic there. Yeah. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Quinn's interview with David Reamer. Kind of shifting gears, um, kind of interested in, you know, when I try to, like, a lot of times, like, people ask me when I'm at school, like, what Anchorage looks like and, like, what Anchorage and I'm sitting there and I have no idea what to say because in my mind, all the houses kind of look the same and all the buildings look the same. And I kind of describe it as like this 80s suburban wasteland. Yes. And why why does Anchorage look the way it does? That's fun. That's a fun question. Um, I actually know an architect that I used as a source for a different article. And I've been wanting to write one with him as we go through the town and we look at its horrible lack of architectural flair to a large degree. I mean, there's exceptions, of course, there's always exceptions, but to answer your question directly, it's because of when Anchorage boomed. The last most significant boom that formed Anchorage as we know it today was 1970s, pipeline money, oil money coming in, you know, when the pipeline was being built. So you have to build quickly. You have a shorter build season here. Um, you have to build quickly. So what you get is all of these quickly built 
builder grade material, um, uninspired, split levels, so many split levels, just working off your basic design books. They needed tons of homes quick. Mm -hmm. This didn't have the time to develop slowly and develop quirks and develop like, you know, architectural identities to specific areas. It didn't have the time for that. Anchorage has always been defined by booms. Mm -hmm. And booms, like when Anchorage was built, that was its own boom, 1915, busted, as I mentioned. But by then, you're dealing with a bunch of quickly built wood buildings that could have come down just as quickly if Anchorage died. That happened to other towns in the area, like Knick, which got bypassed. The places were built so quickly, so shabbily, so thinly that they could just pull it down in almost a day, drag it to the next town and rebuild there. Oh my gosh. That happened in Anchorage. Um, Chickaloon, uh, there used to be a railroad spur to Chickaloon, the coal there uh, for coal mining. Um, they eventually tore that up, tore down all the extra buildings that have built. You know, there's still the Atna village there, but all the railroad, all the settler people that have moved in, they tore down their buildings and they used that, and um, a lot of that ended up in Government Hill. Oh. Knick was a trading post that was sort of the center for the Upper Cook Inlet before Anchorage. You know, 1900s, you know, first half of the 19-teens was kind of north of Anchorage across the Knick Arm. And they thought this they were going to be the town. They got bypassed, chosen as Anchorage for the base. Then they thought for sure the railroad was going to cut through their town. Nope, the railroad bypassed them and instead created a station at Wasilla. It's the reason Wasilla exists where it does. And so they tore the town, and, you know, it's a ghost town. I think there's, like, a building there left. Oh, geez. You know, another thing that I'm really curious about is, you know, Anchorage is so spread out. The municipality goes from, like, outside Girdwood all the way to Eagle River. So... Is there a reason for this, or is it just coincidence? Um, some coincidence, some of just, like, a lot of these are towns with longer political and social connections to Anchorage. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's always been an uneasy relationship. Eagle and Chugiak tried to leave the developing municipality in the early 1970s and were legally denied. Oh, this was actually before the merger that created municipality, but that's a whole long digression. <laughs> Suffice to say, they tried to leave then in the early 1970s. It was the exact forerunner of today's Eagle Exit attempt. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these were stations that, these were railroad stations in the 19-teens and 20s that fed into Anchorage. These were, as Eagle River and Chugiat developed, these were the bedroom communities for Anchorage. These were you know, a connected, they could be considered a unit. This was the, you know, if you go to census, they would have like the election district for Anchorage that would include all of this. Um, it's one of the things I run into a lot when I, I see research done by Anchorage by people who don't have the best graphs on the local history and they'll look at the census data and it'll say 1950 Anchorage had 15,000 people, whatever. But that's because they don't understand that Everyone was living in a ball. City limits had not stretched to include all these people. So a more proper anchorage would be, you know, 40,000 in Anchorage as you would recognize it now. You know, say, for example, the 1960 census when Spinard is listed separately. It wasn't like there was a gap between them. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to give an accurate population for the area, you would have to combine all of those. 
one time, uh, this is just kind of reminding me, I had no idea that Spinard was ever considered its own entity. Oh, yeah. That is so crazy to me. Maybe I missed that day in Alaska studies. I don't know. But one time I saw this sign that said, like, Spinard USA. And I remember thinking, that's so stupid. Like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, Spinard is part of Anchorage. It always has been. It always will be. But apparently I was wrong. Oh, this was a very big deal. You talked to some old heads and they would get upset with you. <laughs> Fairview had its own signs. Welcome to Fairview, like in the 1950s before it was annexed. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a weird thing they've gone back to recently. If you look at some of the street signs in Fairview, they've added a Fairview, Alaska underneath them. Yeah. Um, that's only happened in the last couple of years. There were those signs as you entered Spinard. Um, you know where REI used to be? I'm very familiar. I used to work at Tidal Wave. <laughs> okay. So that before, long before that was REI, that was a place called Caribou. And then it got bought by Montgomery Wards and became Caribou Wards. And it had an escalator. This was like the great thrill of the time. The fact that there was an escalator in Anchorage. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about a lot of horrible things, but there's a lot of fun that comes with going back to history and just seeing the sheer joy when innovations, for lack of a better word, arrive. So this escalator was a big deal. People would go there just to ride the escalator up and down. I remember my Grammy telling me about getting to ride the escalator. Yes, this is a very big deal for a certain generation of Anchorage residents. And there was a sign on the escalator, I can send you a picture, that said, you know, this way Spinard, this way Anchorage. Oh, wow. You know, basically that you were now entering Spinard. I mean... The border actually was Northern Lights. Um, you know, city borders tend to not cut through, um, <laughs> you know, a, a property <laughs> like that. Sure. But it was, you know, figurative. You were leaving Anchorage and entering Spinard and it had a little cute sign. That is really cool. And so also for a whole generation, I've had to like crush people and say, no, you weren't literally going from Anchorage to Spinard just by crossing up the elevator. The escalator, excuse me. That's, you know, that's still sweet. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Things like getting the, um, you know, the first Dairy Queen, um, the first grocery stores in town, the first McDonald's. I One person once asked me, especially like if you follow my Twitter or if you look at like a, a broader view of like what my article topics are, and they are all over the place. Mm-hmm. One week I might write about a murder, the next week I might write about discrimination, the next week I might write about penguins. Like, those are specific examples of things I've written about. Yeah. But, like, this is what history is like when you're dealing with, like, the raw materials of it. You're constantly going from, you know, flipping a page of the newspaper from some horrible arson to some unbelievable story of, like, and now we have penguins in town and we're all going to Dairy Queen together. Because it's the new Dairy Queen in town, and finally we're a big league town because we have a Dairy Queen. Jeez, yeah. Huh. So, can you tell me, what are you currently researching? Um, a lot of things. Housing discrimination still. Um, my next topic for the newspaper, I'm writing about, I post about it on Twitter, but I'm writing about a man named Floyd Kaliak. Not 100% sure I pronounced that right. Um, that's kind of one of the banes of my existence as I read so many words I never get to actually hear. Um, he was a Nupiat man who 
had a learning disability and he would panhandle on the street corners. And he was a sort of folk hero in a way. I mean, he was before I lived in Anchorage. Um, you could maybe ask your mother. He died in 2004. And so he would go around Panhandle, and he would have his signs that would say, say hi to Floyd, and he would dance, and he would smile. He was this just lovable figure, but he was also panhandling. And there's been some strong pushback from panhandling, and these signs that have gone up around town in the past couple of weeks against panhandling. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the intersections, like... You know, some of the Northern Lights, Spinard, like at Spinard, Minnesota, Northern Lights, Benson, through the main part of town, those intersections. I'm sort of writing about that dynamic that this man was beloved. The assembly passed a, a unanimous resolution honoring him when he died, this panhandler. It was a thing. You would drive through town, you would see Floyd, and you would smile. You would feel better. You would wave at Floyd. He would wave at you. Wow. Regardless, regardless if you gave him money, he was this folk hero, mm-hmm. really. Like he was this fixture. He was a, he was an Anchorage character. If you lived in Anchorage in that time period, you knew about Floyd. He was an important part of the landscape. Uh, so that's my next topic. I mean, as is the way, at you know that sounded a bit more serious, but also researching about um, how the Rose Garden came to be on the Park Strip. Oh. Um, apparently when Lyndon B. Johnson visited, they wanted roses, um, for Lady Bird, the first lady, Mm -hmm. and they couldn't get any. And so they were inspired to like, well, we're going to have roses in this, you know, one horse town from now on. And we're going to be again, a big league city. We're going to be, we're a real city. We're going to have a rose garden. So he visited in 66, the next year, 1967, the centennial of the, uh, purchase of Alaska by America from Russia, they built the Rose Garden. And one of the specific influences was that day when they couldn't have roses for Lady Bird Johnson. That's crazy. I gotta say, you have a really cool job. It, it is fun that it is with the newspaper and Twitter and things like, because I'm also happy, like I've done stories on Twitter that have never been touched. Serious stories and lighthearted stories that no one's ever like written about since they happened. No one's ever pulled it into a narrative, things like that. Um, and it, it allows me the chance to go broad because my interests are really broad. Yeah. Like, like I, it literally makes me unhappy and depressed if I only write about housing discrimination for, you know, weeks on end. Oh, that would make me sad too. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I'm a person. I want to read silly, stupid stories about penguins. Yeah. Like, that makes me feel better. And again, that is the history as I'm finding it. It's this horribly incongruent mess. One of the things I pointed out, it's a hard thing to address, but, or like to really show people, like, when there's some extreme tragedy, um, a horrible earthquake, a horrible flood, you know, some giant fire, and you go and look for, like, well, what happened in the newspaper that day? What did the newspaper say? Yeah. And so, of course, those are the big headlines. But even on the front page, there are other stories. The newspaper isn't only about the fire, isn't only about the flood. They're like, well, so-and-so got married. So-and-so knew, opened a new store, and that store's still there decades later. Yeah. And that weird mix of hot and cold and ugly and pretty defines my experience with history and how I is something I've tried to pass on. 
I, I can really appreciate that. And you know, like you've said, like you've said kind of over and over again, Anchorage is such a quirky, quirky city. And, um, you know, from your experience, why do you think studying the history of Anchorage is important to understanding the present? Um, in many ways, it's how we ended up here. I'm in the serious ways, the, you know, Mountain View being diverse has direct historical reasons for the way it is. Um, even the reasons why Mountain View actually for a time was its own independent community. It was prosperous independent community. We're talking, you know, 40s into the early 50s. Then they get annexed. The city famously took away its snowplow and used it in the rest of the city. You know, this is the time when having one snowplow was, a, again, a big deal. Oh, sure. Mountain View was a real town because it had a snowplow. You know, it had department stores. It had, you know, you could live in Mountain View. Um, I actually find it weird because I shop all over the town and I talk to people and they're like, no, I only go to one cars. I only go to my Fred Meyer. I only go to one of the targets. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I go everywhere. I want to drive through the neighborhoods. But, you know, even in those days, you could live and shop and breathe in just Mountain View. And, you know, they get annexed. They lose their snowplow. They lose a lot of what made them distinct. And then they move the path out of town, the Palmer Highway, uh, used to be Mountain View Drive. Oh. You would drive Mountain View Drive you know, out of the city. So that meant you were driving through that commercial district. That made that a very nice, you know, commercial district. You know, as opposed to today, there's like not actually a lot of businesses front facing the Glen. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, in the 60s, they relocated that path and built the new Glen, that new part of the Glen. The Glen existed before that, of course. But, you know, they basically moved the road out of Mountain View. Hmm. That's a reason Mountain View has lower income. It's why it's not as prosperous a community as it might have been. These type of things have impact. These decades later, decisions made in the 60s. Um, when they chose to expand Gamble and Ingra from just, you know, normal little two-lane roads, it was Gamble and Ingra cutting through Fairview used to just be like on the roads on either side. Mm -hmm. You know, you go down Cordova, Hyder or whatever, they were busier. I mean, it was the obvious connection, you know, to cut between the Seward and the Glen. And they had the choice after the earthquake to either, they knew they needed to plant. They knew this wasn't going to work long term. You know, they're cutting through a residential community, speeding through, you know, these little streets. And the first plan was, they were going to take the Seward instead of, um, you know, how it splits into Gamble and Ingra. Now they were going to curve around and go down um, Orca, mm -hmm. basically between what's now Fairview and Merrill Field. That would have been some twisties. That would have cost more. They didn't really care about Fairview because it had its history of being a minority community, um, a place that didn't have money, a place that didn't have any political, like heavyweights coming out of there. Mm -hmm. It was a thing for a long time that, Fairview was like impotent politically. Like no one could get elected with like Fairview as their base. And so they were like, screw it, we're just gonna build up a major traffic corridor right in the middle of a neighborhood, just dividing uh, Fairview. And if you walk Fairview today, 
it's unpleasant at times to get across there. I mean, these are separating people from schools, it's separating people from the grocery store, separating people from parks, having to cross these major traffic corridors. Would you want a little kid to have to walk across these to go to the school, to go buy a bag of chips at the store? You wouldn't really want that. I mean, you live in these communities, you learn, you teach your kids how to do this, but it's not the best. Bad things happen. This increases the likelihood of bad, bad things happening. Yeah. In a community like that, less people maybe want to live there. It becomes a more transient community. And you end up with like Fairview as it is now. So I would love to wrap our, up our conversation on a positive note. So um, can you tell me one of your favorite fun facts about Anchorage? Um, I don't know if it's a fun fact, but one of my favorite stories, and only I, and it seems like my wife sometimes love, is when, and actually this is a really good example of that hot and cold nature of history, how it's like ugly next to oddly beautiful. I was researching housing discrimination, and I was looking through the newspapers for examples of you know, racist classifieds. It's a bad start. It gets there, I promise. And I came across all these ads for people selling chinchillas. You know, the super fluffy, soft-furred rodent. Oh, I'm very familiar. Yes. If you've, yeah, penning one is a dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the softest thing in the world. But I kept finding these ads for chinchillas, and they kept getting, like, increasingly desperate, like, half chinchillas for sale. Come get some. This is a new opportunity. Then it would be like, willing to move chinchillas at any cost. Make me an offer. Then it would be, I need to get rid of these chinchillas. I will take whatever you will give for them. And I had no clue what was going on. I had never heard about this. No one has written about this on like a national level. But I learned that there was this entire fad um, of investing in chinchillas <laughs> and raising chinchillas. They thought this was going to be the new fur fortune. They thought this was the new thing. This was um, this guy import basically snuck chinchillas out of South America, um, imported them to America. You basically get all these chinchillas deriving from him and his little herd. I forget the proper term for a bunch of chinchillas. Brood. So the 20s, 30s, and then by the 40s, it's this full-blown investment fad, almost more of a con, like, you're going to get chinchillas. Not only will they breed like rabbits, and you can then sell those, but then you can, you know, sell the fur. It's going to be this great big deal. You're going to make tons and tons of money. Don't even worry about it. And like good breeding chinchillas were selling for the equivalent of like thousands and thousands of dollars. Whoa. This was real money getting thrown around. People were opening chinchilla ranches. At the same time, chinchillas were also kind of, um, they were very exotic for the time. I mean, it's still not like, you know, if you want a chinchilla, you're going to have to try and find one now. I've tried to find them. They're, you know, not easy. They're not the most common thing. But, you know, you can find them. But considering, like, 1940s, they'd only been brought into the country in the 20s. Seeing a chinchilla was like a weird little event. And people would rent chinchilla, even in Anchorage. I found the ads like, come to my furniture store today. We have chinchillas. You can see our chinchillas daily. Oh my gosh. At so and so store. Like it was a attraction to see a little furry. And chinchillas are lovely, but it's still just a little fluffy rodent in a cage. <laughs> but this was a big deal. This was a huge you also get the feeling of what like life was like before 
TV before the internet. Like, yes, I will drive across town and go to a furniture store when I don't need furniture because I can see a chinchilla today. That will take me a large part of my afternoon, but whatever. What else was I going to do? Listen to the radio? That is so fun. So uh, one of the people who brought chinchillas here, what later became Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, Buell Nesbitt, the downtown courthouse named after him, he brought them to Anchorage. He's selling them. Everybody's buying them. The problem was there was no market yet. Mm -hmm. It was all just on the proposition that you were going to make money. And so they finally had this auction in the early 50s, and the prices were devastatingly low. Because, again, chinchillas are itty-bitty. If you think of it in mean terms, if you wanted to make something from chinchillas, you need a lot of chinchillas. Mm-hmm. You know, even chinchilla to Dalmatian, you need a lot of chinchillas. And then you get into problems like it's going to be patchy looking. You're not going to get chinchillas that look exactly the same. So they weren't the most desirable fur. <laughs> So the market just crashes overnight, and all these people are having these chillas. They're trying to feed chinchillas. There was a chinchilla ranch in Fairview. Oh, my God. Right off of 15. It was this just huge boom and bust that, like, captured the country. You can find front-page articles in newspapers across the country. This was making it into, you know, newspaper cartoons would, like, joke about, I'll pay you when my chinchilla money comes in. That's crazy. And so it's just then people in Anchorage, I mean, you have to imagine this, people in 1940s, 1950s Anchorage, they've sunk their investment money and perhaps their life savings into furry rodents. That is so nuts. And then from that, you start getting chinchillas as pets. <laughs> because then people like had chinchillas and they're like, what in the world are I going to do with these? Have you considered them as a pet? Wow, that is so crazy. Dang. And that's one of my favorite stories. I love that. I love that a lot. Now there's three people who love that story. <laughs> I think that's a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. This was fun. That was Alaska historian David Reamer speaking with Atme senior producer Quinn White. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Spirit of Youth, Rosie Robards, and James McCoy. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership program that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like ACME. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Rory McCowan. Thank you for listening.